Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 15. Revelation 15, as I was preparing this week for tonight, I was just thinking, wow, we, we started in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, and we're up to chapter 10, and we started in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, and we're up to Revelation um, 15. And I can't tell you that, that uh, my feelings would be hurt at all if before I get to the second coming of Christ in preaching that I actually participate in the rapture. How about you? That would be a wonderful, wonderful thing. Well, you know, Revelation, for those of you who haven't been part of the series, Revelation has three basic parts. John is commanded to write the things that are, what's going on currently, in his time, around 90 A.D., 60-ish years or so after the resurrection of our Lord, and that's to the seven churches. So Jesus dictates or gives, if you will, seven letters to the seven churches, and that's what's happening in John's day. So that's the first part of Revelation. Then the majority of the book of Revelation, chapter 4 through chapter 22, so the vast majority of the book, these are the things that shall take place after, obviously after John, but uh, some of them after us because we're still here 2,000 plus years later. And, and that's where we're at in Revelation, Revelation 15. These are the things that shall take place after. It's, it's prophecy. It's, it's, it's actual events that God has foretold, will take place. It's the apocalypsis. It's the, the unveiling of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the third part of Revelation is the all things new, what we're all looking forward to, what we're all longing for, chapter 21 and chapter 22, the, the new Jerusalem, new heaven, the new earth, and all of those, those wonderful things. God has shown us a vision of Jesus Christ through through John in chapter 1, there was the message of the seven churches in chapter 2 and 3. There was the throne room and the transfer of the title deed to Jesus Christ in chapter 4 and 5. I think it's like one of the crescendo moments of the, of the book. Then there's the breaking of the seven seals. This title deed that, that the Lord gets is, is folded seven times with seven seals and he begins to unfurl the, the scroll that's chapter 6 through 8. And then there are seven trumpets that are blown and announcing in the seventh seal. Chapter 12 was the kind of a, uh, an excursus. It's the war in heaven between the woman and the child and the dragon. Chapter 13 details to us what happens in the second half of the tribulation period, the rise of the Antichrist is governmental authority. The apostate church, which has uh, ecclesiastical uh, control or authority, influence over the world's population. Chapter 14 was the proclamation of the victory of the Lamb and the pronouncement of judgment before it ever takes place. Chapter 14 is not chronological, but it, it's a series of prophetic future proclamations hope-building promises that haven't taken place yet, but will very, very soon. Now, we come to Revelation chapter 15, where John sees a final vision of seven great angels 
holding the final bold judgments, the final vials of plagues, saucers, if any of those would fit the word that's used there. The chapter is very short. It's like a trailer for an upcoming horror movie, only this is no movie. It's, it's real, and it will be very, very horrific. It's the just wrath of Almighty God poured out on the earth in the final days of tribulation and the final judgment that God will bring upon the, the unbelieving nations. The bowls come in rapid fire, and they come without relief, and they intensify as they... As they go along, they get stronger and stronger until the seventh finishes the wrath. They're the final plagues, and they're the they're from the, the seventh trumpet. They're called forth from the seventh trumpet, and they conclude the seventh seal from the scroll that Jesus Christ is opening. At the end of the plagues, the Lamb will be able to read the full scroll and declare the future of the earth, which will bring His reign. And when we get there, we'll say, oh, I'm so thankful, the millennial reign of, of Christ. So let's read Revelation 15. There's only eight verses, and then I'll give you the outline. It says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had been victorious over the beast and over his image and over and, and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant or the slave of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works. O Lord God, the Almighty, righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. And after these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chests with golden sashes. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. What a dramatic eight verses, huh? Now here are seven angels and their bowls full of, full of wrath. And the first thing that you see in verses 1 and 2, there's the sign that John sees of the, of the seven angels. He sees a great sign... In heaven, and it covers two verses. Then there's the the song of the of the saints in verses three and and four. These are the martyred saints. And then there's the the scene of the heavenly tabernacle in verses five and six. 
And then finally, there are these seven stores of wrath in verses 7 and 8. And I guess I hit it one too too many times. Seven stores of wrath. There is it all. Now, let's look at this first one. I'll give you each of them again if you didn't get those down. There's the sign of the seven angels in heaven in verses 1 and 2. Look at verse 1, if you will. John says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are which are the last. So, so John says, I saw another sign. And this is a statement. With that statement, we're back to chronological order. Chapter 14 was a future prophecy. In chapter 15, we're back to the chronology of the unfolding of the, of the seals. The seventh seal, and now the seventh trumpet, and this is part of the, of the seventh Seventh trumpet. And he tells us that this is a new scene, another sign, and he tells us that it's in heaven. It's not on the earth. What he's seeing is in the heavens. And he tells us it's great and marvelous. This is the scene. It's a prelude. It's like a summary. Chapter 16 will be the actual bowls. This is the scene of the seven final judgments that come prior to the second coming of Christ. Christ is coming in in chapter 19 of the book of, of Revelation. In Revelation, there are seven seals. The seventh seal contains the seventh trumpets. The seventh trumpet blast calls for the seventh bowls. And the second coming of Christ arrives after the seventh bowl is, is complete. And when we get there, I'll point this out, but chapter 17 and 18 is kind of like chapter 14. It's like a detour. It talks about the woman, the beast, and the fall of Babylon. And so chapter 15 here is the vision Chapter 16 is the actual bowls being poured out. Chapter 19, immediately after that seventh bowl, give the second coming of Jesus. And so John here says he sees a sign, and it's a great sign. Now, this is the, he's seen two other, he's seen many signs, but he's seen two other great signs. Chapter 12, he saw the woman who was the great wonder in heaven. Great wonder in heaven. In chapter 12, he also saw the great red dragon, Mega. And here, John sees the third great sign. But he also says, this one's not just great, it's marvelous. Great and marvelous. You see that in verse 1. That's the, the words appear only, only here in Revelation. In chapter, verse 1, and then again in verse, verse 3. And John sees... Uh, this new group of seven unique angels holding seven of the last plagues. Now, the plagues are described in two ways. Look at how they're described. So the sign is great and marvelous. What he sees, it's in heaven. There's seven angels who had seven plagues, and the plagues are described, which are the last because in them the wrath of God is finished. So the plagues are described. These are the last, and they are God's final wrath. And in the Greek, it's in the emphatic. It it would read something like, having seven plagues, the last ones, because this is the end. And that's why they're they're worse than anything up to this point. And John says they're filled up with, with the wrath of Almighty God. They bring to completion the fulfillment of divine purpose. Here, that purpose is God's fury. Now... You can look through your Bible, and in English you'll find a number of different words for for what we would we would call anger or or wrath. Now God's displeasure. There's seven several words, not seven words, 
I've got seven in my mind because there are seven angels. But there are several words used in the Bible for God's displeasure. Typically, the word for wrath is, is orge. It's, it's what you normally see when you come upon wrath. When, when you're told to put aside all anger and wrath and, and malice, you're, you're, you're told to put aside that, that word. But, but here, this wrath of God, which is finished, is, is the word thymos. It's the word for anger. And John means to imply by that that these bowls are an expression of God's thymus. It's an expression of God's anger. Now, I don't know what you think about God. I've asked people before that may have a wrong view of God to close your eyes and imagine what expression you see on God's face. And I'm not getting weird whenever I do that, or as Mark would say, trying to tell you to get some kind of download, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to ask you, what do you think God's disposition is in your mind? I mean, the Bible tells us who God is, and that's fixed. All of His attributes are there. That's who God is, not what we think or what the culture says. The Bible tells us. God tells us what He's like, and you know what He's like because of all of His attributes. But, but how do you perceive Him? Do, do, you, do you see Him with a scowl on His face? Do you see him with a with a smile on his face? How do you how do you picture him? Well, the Bible says that that while God is long suffering, he's also angry with the wicked on a, on a daily basis. Now it's hard for us to grasp all of the different attributes of God and how they remain in harmony. They're not these separate little things that God just decides. Well, I'm going to be long suffering today, or I'm going to be angry today, or I'm going to express love today. This is what God. These are the things that God. God is. God is love. He doesn't just express love. So those things that come from God come from His, His character. God is not like us. God is able to be, to be both long-suffering and angry with the wicked on a, on a daily basis. We're, we're not. We're, we're either nice or we're, we're ugly. We're either long-suffering or we're angry. But the two expressions of God's long-suffering and His anger come together in, in, in this idea of, of what's happening in God's timeline of, of judgment. We get in trouble sometimes when we, we, we start applying fairness doctrine to, to God. You know, well, that's not fair if God doesn't give someone a chance to hear the gospel, or it's, it's, not, it's not fair if... If God chooses who He shows grace to and chooses who He doesn't show grace to, that's not fair. You get in trouble with the fairness doctrine because you start with, with man. And the Bible starts with, with God. And God is always just. And God would be absolutely just if, if He would have fried Adam and Eve on the spot. He'd be absolutely just if He never had a plan of salvation because we were the ones that sinned. We followed after Adam uh, as Adam being the, the federal head. And God is absolutely just. But God chose in His infinite infinite mercy to delay that judgment and to provide a plan of salvation, right? I mean, that's what the Bible is all about. From Genesis chapter 3 up to Revelation is how God is working out this great plan of redemption. And that gospel is to be proclaimed to every living creature in the world. And, And in that plan, there are two expressions of God's attributes that, that, are, that are functioning at the same time. That's God's long-suffering, mercy, and God's, and God's wrath. 
His long-suffering provides a merciful delay. If God wasn't long-suffering, His wrath would have already come. There wouldn't be any gospel being preached. You wouldn't be here. There wouldn't still be rebels out there today that have a chance to repent and believe. But God is long-suffering, and He doesn't desire for anyone to perish. So His long-suffering is holding back this wrath that we're seeing, this anger that's, that's there, the, the, anger, the wrath being expression of His anger. But it doesn't cool His ire. You understand what I'm saying? His long-suffering is holding back the wrath, but it doesn't mean that God's not angry with the wicked or angry with, with sin. God's wrath is being stored up against all ungodliness, the Bible says. And that's being added to every moment. But it's His long-suffering that holds it back until the time of His choosing, when He unleashes it, which is what we're seeing in, in Revelation. He holds it back because... He desires men to come to repentance. He unleashes it because he demands all to honor his holiness. And that's how those two come together, at least in this expression of judgment. And John wants us to see that this wrath, that this final wrath that's finished, is, is this anger that's being burning. And the expression of these, of these plagues is God finally un, unleashing it. And what these angels hold in their hand is the full and final damn waters of, of wrath that, that they will be given the opportunity as God's servant to, to unleash. So it's the last, because in them the wrath of God is, is finished. But that's not all John sees. Look, if you would, at verse 2. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had been victorious over the beast, over his image, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. So John sees this great and marvelous sign in heaven, seven angels, seven plagues, and they hold the final judgment. And he also sees something like a sea of glass that looks like it's mixed with, with fire. Now, imagine, if you will trying to describe something in writing, you have a limited number of, of words, and you're writing it down, and for the next 2,000 years, everybody's going to read it. Imagine trying to describe something in writing that, that you see in a heavenly vision when it's nothing you or anyone else have ever observed in their lifetime. Now, think about how difficult that would be. That's what John's doing here. And he describes it like a sea of glass... And he said it, it, it looks like it's mingled with fire and there are people standing on this sea of glass. Of course, this is symbolism, but it is rich symbolism. Now, what does this mean by this sea of glass? Well, well John describes God's holiness back in chapter 4 like, like, like a crystal. And so here we know that John is looking into the very throne room of God because the later verses tell us that he's seeing into the, into the literal throne room of God. And so John is looking into the very throne room of heaven and he observes this immense floor designed to reflect the glory of God. So it, it looks like a sea. When, when, the, when the sun shines upon the sea, it, it, it gives a reflection and it's massive. It's, this, it's the immense floor 
of the throne room of God, and it's designed to reflect the glory of God. It's like the sea, and the sea is reflecting something from His throne. And what it's reflecting is fire. It's the divine judgment proceeding from God's holiness, reflected in His, in his glory. And the people are standing on this floor that looks like a mirrored sea, And behind them is burning from his throne this wrath that's about to be unleashed by these seven angels. And they're able to stand because they've been victorious. They're standing. Significant. You find others in Revelation falling down in worship. You find these standing. And they're standing with the fires of judgment burning from the throne behind them, reflecting upon I mean, it's so bright and so hot, it's reflecting on the very floor that they're, that they're standing on. And the Bible tells us why they're able to stand. Look at verse 2. I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had been victorious over the beast and over his image and over his name, standing on the sea of glass, and they're holding harps. So they're standing, and they're... They're holding something. They've been victorious. He tells us who they've been victorious over. They've been over the beast, over the image of the beast, and over his number. They're in heaven. So they're dead. Regardless of what you read, three minutes in heaven, 30 minutes in heaven, it's more like $3 million in my pocket. It's all a bunch of junk. Read the Bible. Uh, Nobody goes to heaven and comes back. Um, These are dead. They're in heaven. And that's the way they overcome Satan and his system, because they're dead. It's a clear reference to Revelation chapter 13. The beast is Satan. The image is what was to be worshipped. And the number, you know, was the mark that, that allowed you to escape persecution. And so these have, have, these saints were not conquered. They would not bow, they would not be marked, and they were killed for it. And that's the way that they overcame. And now they're they're singing in heaven, and they're standing in the very presence of of God. Now imagine what kind of defeat that looked like. Imagine what kind of fear may have struck their heart at the moment in which they went under the knife or the bullet or whatever it might be when they, they decided, I will not bow. I'll not worship the image, I'll not follow after Satan's system, and I'll not take the number, and, and, and they, they died. And now think of the immense joy. They're standing in heaven in the very presence of God, and they're singing. They're not worrying about any sacrifice that they, that they made whenever they were on the earth. And they're standing there with His holy fire burning behind them, being reflected under their feet, about to be hurled to the earth upon their enemies that put them there. Now, you talk about a picture of a victorious people right here. It's a picture of a victorious people. Now, this is very fascinating that they're holding harps of, 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 of God because there's only two musical instruments. You could call them musical instruments mentioned in Revelation. There's a trumpet and there's a harp or a lyre or lyre. Whenever I was in, I don't know, fifth grade, uh, I had the choice of picking an instrument 
And I can remember my best friend picked a trumpet, and he picked it because there were only three things that you had to do on the top of it. And I thought, well, that's a pretty cool idea. But, you know, being a guy, being in fifth grade, and I want something that's got a bunch of things on it. So I picked the saxophone. And I can remember going and asking my mother, we need to buy a saxophone. And she said, let's rent a saxophone until we see what you do with the saxophone. And she was really smart because it went right back to the rental place. And here's a trumpet. Now, this is not like the, the trumpets that we have. It's, a, it's, a, it's like a long tube it, 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 that, that has, a, has a large end. And, and it, was, it was for announcing and you've seen the trumpet used. There's seven trumpets. They announce things, announce the judgments of God, announce what's coming. Pay attention. And then here is a harp. And that's used in heaven to sing praises to God. And notice it says that they're harps of God. At least that's the way the New American Standard puts it. It's the way the Greek puts it. It's... It's the, the harps of God. It means the, the objective of the harps are worship. They're to be played for God. They're the reason that the harps exist, that's their objective. It's, it's to worship. They're not used for other things. They're, they're to be played for God. And so here, the, the martyred saints are, are given a unique privilege to be musicians in the, in the heavenly chorus. I mean... You talk about a privileged position, close to the throne, and they get to play music for the worship of the Lamb. Did you know you get not this kind of privilege, but a similar privilege every Sunday? You did it tonight. That's what you do whenever you sing in church or play in church. When you sing, you sing to God and you sing about God and you lead others to to do the same. Is that how you think about congregationals? I hope so. Because that's what you're doing. You are part of, a, of a, an earthly chorus that's singing into heaven, and you're in heaven, you're just not there yet. You're seated in heavenly places with, with Christ. And I want you to notice what they, they sing. There's the sign of the seven angels, and then there's the song of, of the saints here, the martyred. Saints, look if you would at verse 3. And they sang, they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. The hymn of praise sung by the martyred saints while they, they played the music is the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Isn't it? The song of Moses. In the original, both have an article. The Song of Moses, The Song of the Lamb, and, and they're both sung by the, by the martyrs if they're two songs, which that's what I, I think that they are. The other option is that the second explains the first. So the Song of Moses, that is the song about the Lamb. Either one are possible in the original language. I like the two songs better. But regardless, they both point toward praise for God's deliverance. The Song of Moses... In the Song of the Lamb, uh, Moses sang several songs in the Old in the Old Testament, recounts God's faithfulness, and and many of these martyrs here are Jews, and they're singing about Moses, 
who was the servant, the bond servant of God. And they're here because they believed upon the, the Lamb. So they're singing also about the redemption from sin and, and these martyrs have overcome by the, by the blood of the Lamb. Exodus 15 was sung by Moses right after the Dead Sea Deliverance. Deuteronomy 32, written by Moses, covers all of God's faithfulness for His people. Whatever the song of, of Moses ascribes praise to God and and the words are written here in, in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the King of the nations. God's works and His ways are praised. Do you see that? Great and marvelous are your works. The Lord... O Lord God, the Almighty, righteous and true, your ways, King of the nations, sovereign ruler over all of the, of the earth. So God's works and ways are praised in this song. Wonder and astonishment is aroused because of His works. And He is perfectly just and righteous. God is true and He keeps His promise and He's the sovereign King over the nations. And just like God hurled the riders into the sea in the, the Red Sea crossing in the days of Moses, so He's going to hurl the enemies of God into not a sea, but a lake of fire soon. In verse 3, this song is about the past and about the present. But watch how verse 4 turns to the, turns to the future. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you. And your righteous acts, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is about the future. It's the end of Isaiah. Where Isaiah clearly says at the very end, all of the nations will be brought before, before God. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? You alone are holy. All the nations will come, all of them, and they will come. They'll come in the future and worship before you in your righteousness because your righteous acts have been revealed. This looks to the end of the tribulation where all men will bow, will stand before the Lamb and they will, they'll bow. It's, uh, in your flesh, it's discouraging at times whenever you look around and it looks like evil is, is running rampant. Evil men, evil concepts, evil acts, evil deeds. And it's easy whenever you look around you to think, it looks like we're losing the battle here. And whenever you get that way, look up. Because that's exactly what is happening here. While there are rebels today, and while there will be rebels in tribulation, God has appointed a day in which He will judge the world. And that day will come soon when men will both fear Him and will also acknowledge that He alone is God. All the nations will do this. America and Nepal, China and Saudi Arabia... Iran and Africa, the Vatican and Venezuela will, all of the nations, all the people are going to do this. this. Nancy Pelosi and Vladimir Putin, Gandhi and Confucius, Mohammed and the Dalai Lama, 
Buddha and President Trump, everybody is going to bow and confess that Jesus Christ is God. And all the nations will come before Him, and they will worship. And the martyred saints are singing about this when that's going to happen. And they're singing it to Jesus Christ before it ever takes place. And one of the ways that you can praise God is sing to God about what He's told you is going to take place before it ever takes place. And if that's not exciting enough, John gazes deeper into heaven. Look, if you will, at verse 5. There's the scene of the heavenly tabernacle. Now, there's, there's rarely a service that that goes by where I don't have someone come and talk about some insight or, or give some encouragement um, about, about the Word, especially those that have, when you're in dealing with prophecy or you're dealing about Israel, people that, that really study that type of thing, whether it's the feasts or the days or whatever it, whatever it might be. And if you're here tonight, you'll love this, this scene. Because John says in verse 5, After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. He gets to see into what is described in the book of Hebrews. The earthly tabernacle and the temple are replicas of what is actually in heaven, complete with the holies of holies. And John gets to see into that very place right here. The very design that God gave Israel in the wilderness comes from what is in heaven. And John looks in the tabernacle in heaven and it's opened and he gazes on the most holy place. Now think about that. You don't just get to go into the most holy place. Only the high priest goes into the most holy place. There is a curtain That separated the most holy place from everything else and everyone else. You didn't go in there without a blood sacrifice. And you did it only explicitly as God commanded you. And you had to be ceremonially clean before you went in. Even the way that Jesus Christ communicates, that God communicates that, that, that heaven has been opened to anyone who will come through Jesus Christ is the, is the veil in the temple is, is ripped. And now John gets to see not into that holies of holies, but into the one that's in the very throne room of of God. Now, if the holies of holies on earth is sacred, can you imagine this one? The tabernacle of testimony. It's the tent-like structure within the holies of holies. It contains the holies of holies. And this word about the tabernacle of testimony, it's the... It's, it contains the tablets. It contains the, the Ten Commandments as, as they were placed in the Ark of the Covenant or the, the Ark of the Testimony. It was a testimony. What would be central in the covenant relationship between God and His people? God will now live in the midst of His people. And they're, they're sinful. Something has to regulate this holy God with these unholy people. And He's done that by grace. They're not being saved by keeping the law. They're saved by grace. They have faith in God. Faith that He would provide a Messiah in the future. 
And the way that they express that love is through keeping the ceremonies and keeping the law. And so in the tabernacle, you have the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat on top of it, and the, the commandments are there, and God, the, the very presence of God, is above the mercy seat in that place, and the commandments are there, and we've broken the commandments, and God meets us there on that mercy seat and between His holy presence and, and our failure to keep those commandments, it, the blood is, is sprinkled. Amazing symbolism. And here is the tabernacle of testimony in heaven that's opened. Now put this together. John sees the sanctuary opened. The curtain is parted. And seven great angels are coming out of the holies of holies. And they come out, as they come out, the martyred saints are thronged around the sanctuary with harps leading the chorus of praise to the Lamb for His victory and how all of the nations are going to bow before Him. He's been faithful. And the mirrored floor in the throne room is reflecting the fires of judgment that are being stoked for this final act of justice that these angels are getting ready to, to unleash on the earth. Now, you talk about a scene. That's a scene. And John even tells us how the angels are dressed. Look at verse 6. Seven angels who had seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen, clean and bright, girded around their chest with golden sashes. They're clothed in linen. Linen is the same material that the robes the priests wore, what the martyrs wore, what will be given. It means that these angels are God's servants. And their acts are service to Him. And they're righteous. They're clean. And all of this is symbolic about of what is about to, to happen. Verse 7 and 8. Here are the seven stores of wrath. Seven bowls. Seven vials. Seven saucers. Go to verse 7. Here's something new. One of the... Gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And finally, as the angels move out, one of the four living creatures gave them saucers or bowls to carry the plagues. They're, they're full. Not just a little drop. What are these? I'm not sure. Um, they're the, the incense pans. Um, whatever they are, we know what they contain. They're full of the wrath of God who, who lives forever and ever. And the four living creatures form the innermost circle around the throne of God. The risen Christ is at the right hand, and now He's the center. And then you had the four living creatures that were immediately next around the throne. And then you had the 24 elders who were bowing down, crying out, Worthy is you know, the Lamb, worthy are you. And then you had the victorious saints with the harps, 
leading the, leading the songs. And these four creatures in Revelation have already been guiding worship. They've, they, these four creatures sent out the four horsemen of the apocalypse in Revelation 6. And now they supply the seven angels with bowls to carry the wrath of the one who lives forever and ever. And the bowls are filled with wrath, and the temple is filled with smoke. Look, if you would, at verse 8. And the temple was filled with smoke, and it's from the glory of God and from His power. So as they come out of the temple, they come out of the holies of holies, the temple is filled with the smoke of the glory of God, and it, it feels like it does on earth, except this happens in, in, in heaven. It's, and His holy presence prohibits anyone from entering until this is, this is done. This is a solemn moment. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Smoke comes from the glory of God and from His power. Now, you've seen that before. Exodus 24, there was a cloud smoke on, on Mount Sinai to the point with the thunder and the lightning that the people feared and said, we don't want to talk to him, Moses. You talk to him and you tell us what he said. Exodus chapter 40, when the temple is, is uh, the tabernacle is set up, the, the cloud covers the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Exodus 40 verse 35. When the ark was brought to the temple... A dark cloud filled the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. When Isaiah looked into the throne room, in Isaiah 6, the temple was filled with, with smoke. And we're told this smoke represents the, the glory of God. And now this smoke and glory and power is present at the declaration of judgment. God's presence, God's power for God's glory and it's all part of the of the plagues. His name will be vindicated and his glory demonstrated in in these bowls of, of wrath. And look at chapter sixteen, verse verse one. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the of the wrath of God. The anger is now expressed in these in these plagues. What a glorious scene and what a horrific scene. It's glorious for us. If we know the Lord Jesus Christ, it's horrifying for those who don't. So what do we say? What do we do? We'll turn back to Psalm thirty four. And we'll close by reading this. Psalm 34. found myself saying, how do you respond to that kind of vision, that kind of, of, of scene? This has nothing to do with the end, but it does express certain things to God that are in my heart whenever I read That passage, this is David. I will bless the Lord at all times. 
and his praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. O magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name forever. I sought the Lord and He answered me, delivered me from all of my fears. And they looked to Him and were radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. The poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and rescues Him. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you saints. For those who fear Him, there is no want. Young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves the length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their trouble. The Lord is near the brokenhearted and He saves those who have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate righteous... Hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of His servants. And none of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.